With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Dolo White Podcast is brought to you by Cinema Anywhere Nashville. Follow Cinema Anywhere Nashville on Instagram and book your indoor or outdoor cinema experience today. Hey, it's Dolo White and this is the Dolo White Podcast. Of course, immigration has been a big topic in the country for as long as it's existed, especially in recent months with the debates over Afghan and Haitian immigrants. My guest today is Chin Julie Wong, an attorney, Ivy League graduate, and author of Beautiful Country. But more important than any of that, she's an immigrant that spent many years undocumented in America. So let's do this. Welcome to the Dolo White Podcast. Pull up, get it. Live. Yeah. What's up? Uh, this is not live. It, it's completely recorded. Broadcasting from one of the top recording studios in all of Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, that's not true at all. I'm, I'm probably at home doing this. He's been called one of the greatest thinkers of his time. Literally no one has ever called me that. I, I do kind of agree with it, though. Right. Right here. A 2017 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. That's just a flat-out lie. Talking politics, community, race, religion, entertainment, sports, and whatever the fuck else. Yeah. It's the Dola White Podcast. All right, welcome into episode 47 now of the Dolan White Podcast. My guest today, author of Beautiful Country, Chen Julie Wong. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Your book is kind of is your life story as an undocumented immigrant is, is how you start out from China. So let's kind of get a brief synopsis of your story. I know we can't spend the, the entire time on there because I have a lot of things I'd like to ask you about. Uh, but can you give us kind of a brief synopsis of your story of the book and, and then we can go from there? Sure. The book really centers on kind of the before and after of my childhood and my life, which took place when I was seven years old in 1994. That was the year when my mother and I left North China for New York City to follow my father here. In China, I was a kind of normal kid who fit in, who didn't have to worry about whether she was going to get enough food to eat, whether she would have friends to play with, whether she spoke the language. And as soon as we disembarked at JFK Airport, I realized that all of that was going to change Um, And the very first thing I noticed was people of different races. I had only been around people who looked like me. I didn't even know blue eyes were possible. So understanding that I was a racial minority was a very new thing to grapple with. And then, of course, and probably more sizably, was this idea that we were not welcome or permitted to be in the United States And so this became a secret and from secrecy comes shame, of course, that I learned to guard and carry with me through elementary school. So the book Beautiful Country really follows me in my first five years um, after immigrating to New York City. What was in your parents' decision to move? Because I know, I believe they were professors in China and then they came here to work like um, industrial jobs, correct? Yes, they worked at sweatshops, at sushi processing plants, all physical labor jobs. And that story really begins even before I was born. My father was labeled a dissident 
at age mm-hmm. seven because his brother, then 18, dared to write a piece criticizing Chairman Mao, the Chinese government, for the Cultural Revolution, which caused many scholars, intellectuals, professors, among others, to be persecuted and killed. When it was determined that it was my uncle who wrote it, the entire family was labeled traitors to China. My uncle was thrown into prison, starved and tortured. My father uh, went to all of his schooling years carrying that black mark on him, being forced to stand in front of classrooms every day, having his teachers and students berate him and his family. He saw his parents get dragged out for public beatings regularly. So it really marked his relationship to the government and to the Chinese government. But despite all of those odds, my father made it out and became a professor of English literature. But even from that esteemed position and within his own classrooms, he realized that he could not teach his students the type of social commentary that inspired him Mm -hmm. so much as in Dickens and Hemingway and Mark Twain's works. So shortly after that, uh, my parents grew concerned that maybe something he said or something he wrote as a professor would create that same dynamic that he grew up under. And he definitely did not wish that for me. He wished for a place where I could be very open and expressive about what I believed and what I thought to hold the government accountable. So as much as he was running away from China in that move, he was also very much running toward America. To his mind, America was, and to this day still is, this beacon of light where you are free to express yourself, where you can do things, um, be civically engaged to keep your government accountable. So that was kind of how we all three of us came to end up in Brooklyn. It's an amazing story. And, and, I, and I think people who are very anti-immigration never put themselves in other shoes. And I, and I always say, like, if you're willing, if, if my family was threatened here and my four year old daughter's life was on the line and I had to walk to Canada and sneak across the border or whatever, I would do that. And so I can empathize with somebody that has to do that. And there just seems to be no empathy for people especially when immigration comes up, it's like, oh, they're breaking the law. So that makes them criminals. But you would break that same law if your family, if you felt like your family's life was in danger, all of us are going to break that law. So show some empathy and let's move on from there. But it seems like there's none of that for almost like half this country though, right? I think the problem is the stories that people are exposed to. It's so much easier to feel empathy for someone whose story you're familiar with For instance, for people of color across America, we can very easily empathize with white Americans because that those narratives and those people are portrayed in media. But the story of undocumented immigrants, immigrants in general, we have been for the large part of this nation's history silenced. We do not really exist in media except as two dimensional caricatures. And most of all, we're usually just headlines and talking points for politicians. And that's really what I endeavor to do with this book is to allow anyone who might be just a little bit curious to open the book and step into my childhood shoes. I I wrote this without editorializing, without sermonizing. It is purely meant to be an experience. I want reader to feel like by opening the book, they are boarding a train 
and then they can see out the window and see things that are, in fact, familiar because the human experience, the American experience, the childhood experience is universal in many ways, but also new scenery that they may not have otherwise been exposed to, especially in our mainstream media. You mentioned earlier when you came here, you were a racial minority for the first time in your life. How did that experience kind of shape where you are now? Like if you were if you were still in China and you weren't a, a racial minority there, like the lens that you see the world through is obviously different here as a minority than it would have been there as not a minority. What changes do you think you as a person can see as a minority that you may not have been able to see uh, had, had you stayed in China? I mean, privilege is what we don't think about. It's what we don't need to think about. And I would have had that privilege had I stayed in China not not having to think about the minority viewpoint having lived as a racial minority here in the United States I'm it's just easier I think for me to empathize across labels and boundaries and try to step into someone else's perspective because I myself am of the perspective that is rarely shown in media and I think my relationship, my acceptance of myself would have been more taken for granted than this hard fought acceptance of who I am, what I look like, and feeling like I have a voice in this country. All of those have been hard fought. And that's not that's not always a bad thing. I mean, I have had to develop more resilience, more confidence, more determination. As a result, I, I would have been an entirely different person, I think, if I had never immigrated. Yeah. And the name for and the reason the name, if I believe the name of your book is Beautiful Country is because I don't want to mispronounce this in in Chinese, but the, the name for America in China is Meiguo. In Mandarin, the word for America is Meiguo, which literally translates into first character, beautiful, second character, country. And I think it really speaks to the beacon of light that America is still viewed with um, on the international stage. And I think that we all American citizens would do well to remember that that is both a privilege and a responsibility to carry forward and make sure that America is staying true to what it's promising to everybody. Now, let's fast forward to the past year, because I think most people forget a lot of American history when it comes to especially to to Asian immigrants. It always hasn't been nice. And I, I think we forget that. And then and then times like COVID came up and I, I vividly remember thinking when when the president, when Trump at the time was calling it the China virus, I was like, this doesn't end well. This is not good. This is what are they dog whistling? Is that the, is that the term? Like that, that's exactly what this is. And then we saw the, the violence towards Asian people rise, but we have a long history of anti Asian policies and anti-Asian violence. I mean, this is this is nothing new. It just kind of revamped over the past year. But if you look back on history, there's there's a lot of things that you can look at to say it always hasn't been great. Absolutely. I think the whole motif of the model minority, whoever came up with that was great at executing it because it blinds, it seems to blind everyone. And I I felt like I didn't have a voice in the racial discussions either because I was like, well, we're model minorities. But it blinds people to the reality that Asian Americans have dealt with violence and racism for as long as we have been in America. I mean, the very first 
exclusion policy and immigration law was against Chinese immigrants and Chinese women specifically, even though it was framed as a pro anti-prostitution law. So if you trace back from those early roots and the language that those laws used, you also see that one of the most severe lynchings in American history was against a group of Chinese immigrants. So this has been a problem in our country for as long as our country has taken in Chinese immigrants. And while I am grateful and glad that the media is now shedding light on it, I don't want people to think that this is anything new. As I share in my book, one of the very first English words I learned was chink. And I mm -hmm. thought that it meant Chinese in English because it was thrown at us every time we went outside. And that was in 1994. That was not that long ago. No. But it also shows that it wasn't in any way related to COVID. So I just caution people to think critically. The Asian American population, the Chinese American population is not a monolith. While there are cherry-picked examples of success stories of wealthy Asian Americans in New York City alone, the lowest social economic class is dominated by Asian Americans. So there are there might be some of us at the top, but there are many of us struggling to make ends meet while dealing with day-to-day -day violence. And I guess, is it a surprise when you paint a certain race as weak and submissive and unable to fight back? In hard times, who are people going to scapegoat and target if not that race? I agree with that. And I feel like with Asian women particularly, there is some kind of racist fantasy thing that I, I'm sure you could speak to better than I can. I don't know that that's ever been addressed before. I've never heard anybody speak about it, but it does feel like with Asian women, particularly, there is some kind of extra racism and sexism and thrown on top of that. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. It's racialized misogyny. Yes. It's a combination of being seen weak as a woman and then being seen weak as an Asian American. And while um, there are not many statistics, I mean, if you look at a typical news report, Asians are not even broken out by statistics. So I don't have firm numbers on this, but I would suspect that Asian American women are among the most likely to be targeted for sexual assault, for violence, precisely because we are seen as doubly weak and uh, doubly easily controlled. Um, we're, we're seeing now a lot of people from Afghanistan coming over here and, and, you know, rightfully so. I know you do a lot of work with civil liberties, with immigration policies, with uh, what are you seeing out of Afghanistan right now? Are we handling this correctly? Is, or are we fumbling it again? What, what are we doing? Yeah. In law, I don't think it's possible to handle any situation a hundred percent correctly or not that I've See, I'm a litigator, so I fix problems. <laughs> if, there, if things are going well, then I don't need to enter the picture. I do think we are on the right track, generally speaking. I like the tone that the government is setting of being welcoming to Afghan refugees and asylees. I do think we need to be reminded of why these people need to leave to begin with, why yeah. their homes were destroyed and our government's very own role in that. So as much as it is a human responsibility to take in refugees, as much as it is an American responsibility because we put ourselves out as a place of refuge, it is also very distinctly our responsibility because of what our government has chosen to do for the past 20 years. Yeah, we, we made our own bed there. Um, 
I always hear people, no matter what the country is, be it Afghanistan or Honduras or whatever, uh, when people are coming over, they always say, well, well, the people should just rise up and overthrow the government. And I'm like, (laughs) that's great. But like, that's not typically possible. That's happened, you know, a couple times throughout history. It's not something that you can just say, yeah, we're just going to overthrow the government. It's not a big deal. Uh, but I mean, that that's the argument that people have though. And I'm like, it's actually much easier to walk here from Honduras <laughs> than it is to overthrow a government. I mean, it, when you think about it, it really is like, and I, I guess my, my question for you right now would be like, what is the one thing that the average, I'll say white person needs to know about immigration in general, be it Asian or South American, Central American, whatever. What is the one thing that people need to understand, specifically white people need to understand? Well, there are a lot, but yeah. <laughs> we got time. <laughs> um, one, one argument that I've heard parallel to the one that you brought up is, well, if it's so hard being undocumented, and it's so stressful and you're hungry, then why are you coming here? All the more reason to not let you all come here. And that's really myopic. That shows that that person has never really lived outside the United right. States. We have our problems for sure. We have a lot of problems here, but it pales in comparison to the human rights violations, the dictatorships, the utter governmental control over every facet of society that exists outside our borders. The fact that despite how bad it is in the U.S., and now people are starting to know that it's not all roses and streets paved with gold, despite that, people are still risking their lives to come here and risking their children being hungry to come here. That should give you some sense of how bad it is outside of the United States and and how desperate those people are. And as you said earlier, what would you do if you were a parent? I think all of us can channel that kind of love and empathy and resilience for our children. If push came to shove and we were in those situations, we would do the very same thing. Absolutely. absolutely without a doubt. You wouldn't, you risk your children's lives to overthrow a government on your own, a military of one or two people like that. <laughs> that's absolutely absurd. The other point that I wanted to make and what I really tried to do with this book is show the universality of the human experience of childhood, of family, of not just the hardships of immigration, but also the joys and resilience and love that exists just by virtue of being in a, a person in the world, a person in America. I have had overwhelming feedback from readers saying that they have never immigrated. They've never even left their town, but reading this book recalled them to the truths of their childhood and their identity. And so that tells me something vital, that we are more alike than we are different. And when you operate with that idea in mind and you go about the world knowing that there are people around you who are undocumented and afraid to say so, you will naturally, naturally feel that empathy and love toward everyone around you because your experience is the human experience, is their experience. Past these labels, we are really not as different as we think we are. You're a a U.S. citizen now. And can you talk for a minute about that process? Because it's not easy at all. Yeah, and I I think it's obvious that you're like gifted intelligently. So, I mean, a lot of people probably aren't as gifted as you, you know, with intelligence. You know, everybody has their own talents. But I mean, I'm sure passing the tests and having to remember everything you have to remember and just the process itself. Describe that. There's noting I had immense privilege even before immigrating. My parents were extremely educated. 
before we came here. And it was drilled into me in my home that education and literacy was the way out, that we didn't understand how the system here worked, but we could figure it out mm. if I got educated, if I became fluent. Even with that, even with my being lucky enough to have attended Yale Law School, I did not become a citizen until four years after I graduated wow. from law school. This is my expertise, working the system, jumping through the hoops is my specialty. And it took me four years. And on top of that, 22 years from the time I first stepped foot here. So from 1994 to 2016, that was how long it took me an exceptionally privileged immigrant. So I can only imagine <laughs> how very impossible it is to add on top of that any myriad of difficulties and barriers, like not speaking the English, uh, the language well, uh, like having learning disabilities, like having physical disabilities, like not having the support and home environment that I did. So it is near impossible, the system, to, to understand and wrangle. And I'm telling you this as a litigator, as someone who has studied immigration law, who has represented people in immigration cases, it is indecipherable. So to expect someone from a foreign country who barely speaks the language to understand what resources to find and how and which hoops to jump through and when is just beyond the pale of, you know, normal human expectations. It needs to be, it needs to be changed. It needs to be a, a more simplified process. Absolutely. And it's remarkable how much, you know, line jumping that money can buy. You can oh. buy a but you know, <laughs> yeah. you don't have to even speak the language. You can be in the same boat. If you have money, then you get to skip the line. And um, there are real deficiencies there because I can tell you that all immigrants, if we are here, despite all the barriers, it's because we love America. We consider this our home. I consider this my only home, the only place that I have felt to be my true self. And we just want to be contributing members who are accepted and who do not need to worry about being chased out. And I, I really don't think humbly that that's very much to ask. I, I totally agree with you. Um, Jen, Julie Wong, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, the, the book is Beautiful Country. I'm so glad that you wrote it. I hope it gets, you know, I, I know it's getting some really good accolades right now. I see uh, NBC's Today's uh, Read with Jenna book club. That's great. This news off from yes, uh, last night. Um, it's number three on the New York Times bestsellers list. Yeah, look at that. Look at you. Doing great. It's gonna be option for a movie one day, and we'll we'll all be we'll all be watching it. That's amazing. Um, congratulations, and I I love the fact that despite that, you know, you're writing books, you're still going to war every day for people, and and that says a lot about your character. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for writing this book, and I uh, hope you come back on one day. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Cinema Anywhere in Nashville. You can book your indoor or outdoor cinema experience right now, starting at only $350. Cinema Anywhere in Nashville provides your choice of a 16, 24, 36, or even a 100-foot screen plus projector setup and sound system. This is a super dope service that wouldn't just be great for corporate and work events, but also birthday and holiday parties, or if you want to have a romantic evening with your significant other, Cinema Anywhere in Nashville is perfect for all of those things they have the right experience for you follow them on instagram right now at cinema anywhere nashville and book your cinema experience today i want to say thank you once again to my guest chin julie wong you can follow her on instagram at chin julie wong that's q i a n 
J-U-L-I-E-W-A-N-G. And don't forget, check out her book. It's amazing. Beautiful country. Uh, follow me while you're on the gram at DolaWhite101, D-O-L-E-W-I-T-E 101 on all platforms. Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Clubhouse, everything. Uh, thank you again for checking out the podcast. If you're listening on Apple, make sure you rate and review. Don't forget, brand new episodes drops first thing Wednesday morning. Uh, my guest next week, authors of The Proudest Color, a children's book about race, Sheila Mordur and Jeffrey Cashew. Going to be a great episode next week. Thanks for listening. I'm out. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.